Hey everyone and welcome to The Year Was, the podcast all about today that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party, causing all your friends to question, hey, who invited you? Like, seriously, why are you here? I am your host, Michael Montalvo, and for the next few minutes we will swim through the river of time to find out what makes today truly unique. On this episode, we examine the events that occurred... June 17th. Brown shag carpet and a cheap motel do not describe the luxurious Watergate Hotel. In fact, when Luigi Morietti first unveiled his design for the Watergate complex, the reception he received was much like that of Howard Rourke. Devotees of the neoclassical architecture of Washington, D.C. proclaimed it to be blasphemous, and according to the Watergate Hotel website, as appropriate as a strip dancer performing at your grandmother's funeral, which is a new favorite saying of mine. It's safe to say that people were initially not fans. Despite the plans being unveiled in 1961, construction would not begin until August of 1963, which may be normal for contractors, I I really don't know. Still, two years later, in 1965, Watergate East was the first building to open, the grand entrance to the complex. Watergate East is placed on a prominent bend of the Potomac River and has fountains that divide the north and south lobbies, with an extensive lawn and garden section with views unseen anywhere else in D.C. Another two years later, on March 3, 1967, Washington elite and Hollywood royalty mix and mingle as the hotel finally opens. And over the next four years, the remaining four buildings open. But you know that's not why we're talking about the Watergate complex today. It has become a part of our history, an event so prominent that, much like the Beatles library, we are born with a knowledge of it. The year was 1972, and on this day, June 17th, five men with ties to then-President Richard M. Nixon broke into the Democratic National Committee, the DNC headquarters, on the sixth floor of the Watergate complex and were arrested while attempting a burglary. So let's talk about Watergate. The Watergate is a float-activated head pressure valve that maintains a one-foot increase in water elevation between the downstream and upstream sides of a valve. Made by the Agri-Drain Corporation, the Watergate is designed to be buried to better allow for field operations. At the time, politics were a hostile place in America. Hold your shock and surprise, I know it's hard to imagine. The country was divided because of the Vietnam War and Nixon was in the middle of a re-election campaign. In May of 1972, the committee to re-elect the president, which was mockingly called Creep, but not Weirdo, made their first break into the DNC offices to steal documents and bug the phones. They did this because of the Pentagon Papers. The what, you ask? Let's go back to the distant year of 1971. Daniel Ellsberg, a military analyst, had begun to oppose the war and had also decided that information should be made available to the public. So he decided to photocopy the papers and gave a copy to the New York Times. On June 13th, the New York Times began publishing the Pentagon Papers in a series of harsh articles that ultimately revealed the Defense Department's secret history of the Vietnam War, 
But after the papers were released, the government didn't have the evidence on Ellsberg in order to prosecute. So the government did what any reasonable person would do. And on September 3rd, the White House tasked their plumber's unit to break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to find proof that he had leaked the information. They were called the plumbers because they knew how to fix leaks. But this leak was one that couldn't be repaired, and the mission failed. Back in 1972, the wiretaps did not work as expected, so the plumbers were tasked with organizing the break-in of the Watergate complex, complete with new microphones and the intent to steal documents. They planned to do this by using the still high-tech method of putting tape over the door locks. The burglars involved were James McCord, a former CIA officer and FBI agent, Virgilio Gonzalez, a Cuban refugee and locksmith, Bernard L. Baker and Frank Sturgis, CIA operatives, and Eugenio Martinez, a member of the anti-Castro movement of the early 60s. But how did they get caught? A security guard noticed the tape on several doors and called the police. Police showed up and the men emerged from the room with their hands up and according to news reports, they removed ceiling panels, wore surgical gloves, and had with them walkie-talkies and shortwave police scanners. Also on them were 40 rolls of unexposed film and $2,300 in crisp $100 bills. An investigation would later find a phone number included in the address books belonging to the burglars. Whose phone number? E. Howard Hunt, a former CIA operative and member of the Plumbers. This discovery was the cause for speculation of presidential involvement because it connected them to the president's re-election committee. On June 19th, John Mitchell, head of the Nixon re-election campaign and former attorney general, denied any link to the operation, but two months later on August 1st, a $25,000 cashier's check from the Nixon campaign found its way to the bank account of one of the burglars. After the money found its way to the bank account, Nixon and his aides planned to abuse presidential power and perform a deliberate obstruction of justice by instructing the CIA to impede the FBI's investigation. During this time, seven conspirators were indicted with charges and at the urging of Nixon's aides, five pled guilty to avoid trial. The other two went to trial and were convicted January 1973. Many now believed that something bigger was going on, and so trial judge John J. Sirica, members of the Senate Investigation Committee, and the Washington Post's Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein began looking for a larger scheme. The whistleblower, Deep Throat, if you Google that, please type in Watergate alongside it, provided key information to Woodward and Bernstein also during this time. Several Nixon aides were then called before the grand jury about his crimes, and it came out that Nixon had been secretly recording conversations in the Oval Office. But Nixon was very protective of the tapes, and his lawyers argued that he had an executive privilege, which allowed him to keep the recordings to himself. But that wasn't good enough for the Senate committee or Archibald Cox, an independent prosecutor. By this time, John Dean, the former White House counsel who was fired after news of the scandal broke, told investigators that he discussed the Watergate cover-up with Nixon at least 35 times. 
Cox would not back down in demanding the tapes, so Nixon ordered the firing of Archibald Cox, which he was, and because of this, several Justice Department officials resigned in protest. Then, Nixon finally agreed to turn over some of the tapes. By November 17th, Nixon declares, I am not a crook. On December 7th, an 18 and a half minute gap cannot be explained by the White House on a subpoenaed tape. It wouldn't be until 1974 that the Supreme Court would actually order the tapes be turned over. The White House had previously sent edited transcripts, but the committee rejected Nixon's executive privilege and demanded the tapes. Still, Nixon dragged his feet, and in the process, the House Judiciary Committee voted to impeach him for obstruction of justice, abuse of power, criminal cover-up, and violations of the Constitution. On August 5th, Nixon finally hands over the tapes, and on them is found undeniable evidence of his involvement in the cover-up and scandal. With his belief that Congress would impeach him, he resigned from the presidency August 8th and left office the next day, becoming the only U.S. president to do so. So what happened next? Vice President Gerald Ford was sworn in as president and pardoned Nixon for crimes he may have committed while in office. John Dean was charged with obstruction of justice and served four months in prison. After his release, he became an investment banker. Archibald Cox left Washington, D.C. and taught constitutional law at Harvard. Deep Throat, or as we later learned him to be, Mark Felt, denied his involvement in the scandal for years, only revealing himself in 2005. He wrote a memoir, A G-Man's Life, the FBI, being Deep Throat and the Struggle for Honor in Washington. He died in 2008. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein earned the Washington Post a Pulitzer for their work, Woodward still works for The Post, and Bernstein left to write magazine articles and worked for ABC News. Of the burglars, John McCord spent time in prison and upon his release wrote a book about his involvement. Virgilio Gonzalez, after a year in prison, went back to his locksmith career in Miami, and in 1977 he and the other three burglars, Bernard L. Baker, Frank Sturgis, and Eugenio Martinez, received $200,000 from Richard Nixon's 1972 campaign fund as a settlement for a civil suit where they claimed they were tricked into participating. And that's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And as always, I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.